We moved to Minneapolis in 1991 when I was invited to work at the Walker Art Center. And I remember thinking, what am I doing going to the Midwest? I don't even know if they have any Filipino or Asian stores there. And one day I got a card from someone named Valerie Lee saying, we heard you're moving to Minneapolis. We want to welcome you and meet you. Please call us when you're in town. And out of the blue, I'm like, wow, this is really amazing. Who is Valerie Lee? And when we finally got to the Twin Cities, I was invited to the first ever gathering. I remember it was at the house of Carol Nematsu. And after spending a few weeks of not seeing a single Asian face, we entered this household full full of Asian American faces. And for the first time, I feel like, okay, well, this could be home for us. This could be good. And that evening became a turning point um, because that was one of the first meetings that I had attended with a group of amazing Asian American cohorts, leaders, artists, activists, um, influential thought leaders who then founded what is now known as Asian American Renaissance. It was so important to enter a space where you feel you're invisible and then enter a house where you feel not only visible but validated. Asian American Renaissance became the home within the home for us. I remember having moved to our house on Columbus Avenue and having our first long-range planning at my house where we had not yet unpacked and didn't have any writing tools, maybe marking pens. And we decided that we would brainstorm what would be Asian American Renaissance and write our notes on the white blinds that were hanging on our windows. I kept those notes, those white blinds on our window for several years. I literally was immersed in the mission, vision, goals of AAR as it would, it later became known to be AAR. And I think that the strongest impact on Asian American Renaissance and its presence in our lives was that my daughter, Diwa, and her good friend, Sam, who's the daughter of David Mura and Susan Sensor Mura, became lifetime friends. I think that as toddlers being brought to every single meeting we ever had really impacted them and impacted their decision to be who they are and what they are today. And I thank every single soul in that house that evening who welcomed us because if it weren't for the cohorts and the alliance of Asian American artists that we created for each other. We would not have organizations like Theater Moo, Pangea World Theater, Asian Media Access, Center for Hmong, Hmong American Arts and Talent, MISNA, Pangdao, which was a magazine that was started, the first Hmong American literary magazine an Asian American conference where we brought in national leaders across the country and converging in the Twin Cities and talking about literature and cinema and visual arts and 
and dance and theater and everything in between. And I'm just so grateful to have been part of that society of selected, like-minded spirits. We were all changed forever. Welcome to the Mini Asian Stories podcast. I'm your host, Julia Gay. This season, we're diving into our rich histories of organizing and activism in the Asian Minnesotan community. Today, we'll continue our look at the Asian American Renaissance, or AAR for short, which was a community-based Asian American arts organization that began in 1992 and was an anchor in the Asian community here in Minnesota for the decade that followed. Last week, you heard from David Mura, the founding artistic director of the Asian American Renaissance. And this week, we get to hear from Marlena Gonzalez, who is one of the former executive directors of the Asian American Renaissance, and who is an active leader and artist in the community to this day. Marlena is a wonderful storyteller, and I hope you enjoy hearing her memories from her early days of arts organizing as much as I did. I'm Marlena Gonzalez, preferred pronoun she, her, hers. I'm a writer and a curator, and my relationship with AAR started from the very beginning before it was even called AAR. Um, my introduction to AAR started when I, before I moved to Minnesota and I was in New York. Why was the Asian American Renaissance so significant, both to the community and to you personally? So, you know, in visual arts, there's such a thing as negative space. It's like artists would represent the spaces that are actually empty. If you create a sculpture of a chair, it's not the sculpture of the chair, but the negative spaces between the legs. And I felt all along that AR was that to the community, that we filled a negative space and made that negative space visible and made it into an art and made it into a presence. And when there was hardly anything, um, and this was early nineties when I had moved here from New York and had no idea what Minnesota is like, got a little card note from Valerie Lee, um, who was one of the founding members saying, we heard you're moving to Minnesota to work at the Walker Art Center. We would like to meet you. That was my first contact with anyone from the community. And it was an Asian American writing to me to welcome me. And that was amazing because I felt New York was the only place that was diverse in the country. (laughs) And, And knowing that presence was so important for me to even decide that I wanted to move here. AR itself became this hub of random artists who came out of the woodworks and it started to fertilize so much creativity in the Twin Cities that it burgeoned into other organizations. And so the impact of that is still felt today, um, even with my own with my own daughter and our sons and daughters and our children who have been influenced by it. Um, we're still talking about it now. That was like 30 years ago. So that, that says something by itself. <laughs> That's amazing. And I'm, I'm curious, how did Valerie get your contact information? How did she hear about you? 
I think, and, and that's a question we should ask her, but, but I think that at that time, that was like early 90s, there was this random group of Asian APIA folks, leaders, artists, um, who really started to get together in a very organic way, just looked around and said, huh, we're not here, we should be here. And so they started trying to connect to whoever might be entering the spaces of the Twin Cities on Minnesota. They probably heard from the Walker Art Center that they were bringing in a Filipino American to work there in the film department. And that's most likely how they got a hold of my contact. Um, but that says something right there. You know, there, there was a resilience and, a, to and, and a, a definite urge to connect and not wait until somebody introduced you. Um, I think that was so important. And that's how everybody started coming together. Like that's how we discovered each other, you know, kind of like that's how the world should work, right? Like that we discover each other because we're curious about what we don't know yet. And that's how transformation happens. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, David mentioned that he was like, how did we even manage to do all of this without email and social media? <laughs> no, I mean, it was just so powerful, like entering the Twin Cities, not knowing anything about the culture in the Midwest, um, not knowing anyone really, and to suddenly be welcomed by this community, first, a house full of people that looked like you. I remember we were invited to the house of, um, the first meeting I attended was at the house of Carolyn Ayamatsu. And my ex-husband and myself and my daughter who was at the time two and a half or three, we entered this house and it was like, oh my God, Asian people in one room. And not just like, anyone but people that were like-minded and like-souled and had the same goals and the same idea of like the importance of representation for our kids all in one between the four corners of this house was amazing how we even found each other it was all word of mouth you know i i think that's how villages that's how tribes that's how indigenous cultures connect with each other there's no tool needed like if you want to you will get it if you seek you will find and there was a search a very urgent search and we found each other that's what you call grassroots you don't need social media you need no, you a hunger to find community a hunger connection. and the spirit and the and and the the will to make things happen, you know, that is the essence of activism. Well said. That That is really incredible that you were welcomed arms wide open into this budding community. I just feel like that was such a monumental moment in history for us, like looking back on that, the power of having a dinner around a table at somebody's house and how that can lead to this movement, which has led to countless organizations and birthed so many artists that we now know today. So incredible. 
Yeah, there wasn't even a table. Like we didn't have, we didn't even have a table. There was no table. <laughs> you had to build a table. No. <laughs> squatted and on floors and sprawled on sofas. And I remember like people just kept streaming in. It's like, oh, one more person, one more family. Like it was, it was, it was like you were a kid in a candy store. Like, where all where have all you been hiding? Technically, that is how it started. And I think the conversations, you think like, which started first, the dream or the dreamer? I think the dreamers came together, said, I want to have a theater. I want to have, I want to have literary publications. I want to have a dance company. I mean, people just expressed their desires and truly they came to fruition because they knew that there was support. They knew that if they sought out funders or they tried to market anything, they knew people would come to the show because we had each other. And mm -hmm. that's how Theater Moo was born. That's how Mizna was born. Um, Pangea World Theater, Asian Media Access. I'm curious how you've seen us benefiting from that initial organizing, you know, both as a member, a founding member, but also as a parent of a, a child who grew up in this incredible environment of arts and organizing. First of all, the fact that you, the new generation of leaders, three decades later is doing a podcast about this is one of many evidences that it has lived on. Whether or not the 501c3 exists, AAR still lives on and the spirit of AAR still lives on. I think the impact and how we're all benefiting from it is if you if you rewound to that time before AAR existed and imagined that the group of folks with the passion to come together and organize never did. You would see a Twin Cities arts culture that is completely different. And the face, faces of the artists and the performers and the writers and the dancers would be completely different. I think what AAR did was it made it easier and it empowered people and organ to organize. And that's how we benefited from it. What happened, I think, and this is my own belief, is because the dream was so big, it needed to branch out into subvisions, which is where the organizations came up. And so when those other things were happening, it almost felt like then AAR as an organization does not need to exist anymore because it outgrew its own mission to create a sense of Asian American community because suddenly like everybody else took on that baton and running off with their, you know, with the different disciplines that they were involved in. And the impact of it is that, that we are still benefiting from the existence of these organizations that have continued to flourish. We've developed audiences, we've developed a language, a vocabulary to address um, and speak about the nuances of the different cultural um, languages that are embedded in the different disciplines, whether it's dance or literature in any language or even film. Um, 
we have, I think, the impact of it, of the presence being that art critics and writers and reviewers stood up and took notice. That then they, they had to start writing about the different events that were, were happening. And that created more awareness. The first Asian American arts and culture conference in the country happened here. We brought in artists from all over the country and they all converged to talk about art and activism. We had people like Yuri Kochiyama and Renee Tajima Pena um, coming to the Twin Cities to talk about their work and the activism that they do through their work. So it sounds like this conference really put the Twin Cities on the map nationally. It did, and it also put individual Asian American artists on the map. Mm -hmm. From our communities, yeah. For more, yes, but it was like early 90s when AAR became a 501c3. Ken Choi, who was at the time a visiting artist, um, was staying actually with David Mora. I remember the day when we were trying to find a name for AAR and we were email, there was email at least. So we were emailing each other and like, we were like Asian American something like back and forth, like AA what, AA this, A that. And then I think Ken emailed and, and he just wrote, ARG, A-A-R-G-H. It's like Asian American, what would the R stand for? And then I think then the whole idea of like being inspired by the Harlem Renaissance put the word Renaissance in there. And that's how the organizational name came up. The conference itself, I, I still have images in my head of like, um, we occupied spaces at the University of Minnesota, I believe St. College of St. Kate's because June Narona, who was one of the other founding members was at um, College of St. Kate's at the time. And then because of it, it wasn't just us who were the presenters and the organizers, then the audiences came. Like, so multiply every single body that was represented on stage and on screen and you know, in the conference panels, and each of them brought in like a family, a friend, a group, another, you know, and that that caused the re the outreach to expand even more exponentially as a result of the conference being attended by folks that were also from the Twin Cities that didn't know that there were or Asian American artists in the Twin Cities. And then it got written about, and so therefore the visibility really increased in that in, in that sense. The Don't Buy Miss Saigon protests was a really huge movement at the same time, right, as Asian American Renaissance was gaining uh, ground. So I'm wondering, how were those two movements connected? I know there were three separate protests that happened. And then how what was your role in that as well? I was still in New York when the first Miss Saigon production happened. I was at the time with Asian Cinevision. And so then when it was brought here to the Twin Cities, I was so happy to know that the folks within AAR and, and you know, the networks had the same stand about Miss Saigon and its production. And we were faced with a dilemma of like, okay, none of us have seen Miss Saigon. We don't want to see Miss Saigon. And yet we can't talk about it unless we see it. 
And I believe that a core group of us were offered to have to, to come in to the show to watch it for free. Um, so that we at least knew what we were talking about. So, the, you know, Ordway gave us tickets. I recall Rita Nakashima Brock was one of the um, writers who wrote extensively about it. Um, she was bringing in like the Asian feminist or um, perspective towards it. Um, and then the, we did a cabaret. Um, the old Intermedia Arts had at the time a gallery uh, on the second floor of this building in downtown Minneapolis. Um, there was a small gallery there that we had been using for performance cabarets. And so the protests were happening in the sidewalk. And it was in the middle of the winter and everybody was bundled up. And then we were calling people in. This is the first protest. We were calling people in with flyers, asking them to come upstairs and join us. And the place was packed. We were pulling people from the streets. <laughs> and of course, people knew about it. And, and then performer after performer created their own performative response to Miss Saigon. Um, I recall one performance that I remember is Sandy Agustine. Um, because she had come in from the cold, it was like negative, I don't remember, temperature is typical of a Minnesota weather, S went straight from the sidewalk onto the stage. And because she was so wrapped up, she started appropriating the action of a striptease. So she started taking off her clothes and it was so comical because there were so many layers and she was doing it so, just so randomly talking about the weather, but she was like removing her clothes. And it was, it was such a profound way to, to spoof Miss Saigon with so much humor and so much wit and it, you know, and it, everybody connected to what she was doing <laughs> because we had all gone through the same thing. Um, and then Julia, Juliana Pegues and Ken Choi um, in one of the performances at the Ordway invaded the theater and they performed a diet. So in the middle of the show, they came in dressed as, um, dressed in you know, their costumes and proceeded to commit suicide or something like pretended that they were doing in the aisles. And so the show was stopped. <laughs> they couldn't proceed because, or I think they were whisked away. Um, they were probably arrested. <laughs> I'm almost sure they were arrested. Um, <laughs> but that was a disruptive act that used art as a way to um, interfere with and disrupt another form of art that was not connected to the community soul. And so you've got like on the mainstream stage, the expression of um, kind of a theater for profit. And then in the aisles, you've got the expression of theater as activism happening at the same time. And if you can picture this, this was, this is, this is very much a metaphor for what a lot of AAR activities and artists did, which was to question, to disrupt the misrepresentation of 
APIA communities and, and voices by bringing our own voices and then ironically being whisked away for being ourselves. Like we were being arrested for being who we are. And the show on stage continued. Um, and that was a show that was like the fake image of who we are. And that was really a very powerful way to say that, you know, when you ask like, what is the significance and the impact on all of us is that, that the culture that AER introduced provided us with models of how to disrupt conversation that is anathema to our true identity, that provided tools for artists to express themselves in protest by using their art and using their bodies and using their mediums of expression, verbally or non-verbally, to introduce a new language of how to look at the Asian American story and the Pan-Asian experience. There was a third ramification of that. And I actually was, at the time then it was Theater Moves said, okay, we need to protest. And I remember somebody said, we need somebody to be interviewed by one of the TV stations to find out what this protest is all about. Myself and my mother were interviewed by the one of the evening news shows, which will not be named. And I was asked, why is it wrong? What's wrong with Miss Saigon? I don't think they ever used the footage. And they said, if you look at the legal definition of child trafficking, if you look at the legal definition of child abuse, up to a certain age, you may not ask a child to perform even performative acts of sex. At that time, Leia Salonga, the first um, Miss Saigon actress, auditioned. She was underage. I made reference to the idea not only of Miss Saigon as like the regurgitation of the Madama Butterfly, which seems to be the only narrative that any the mainstream culture is interested in, that it insists this is the only Asian experience, the story of like the unrequited love between a white man and, a, and an Asian woman. Not only that, but the process of production was questionable. You had like, two white males auditioning, looking for their vision of Miss Saigon. And they chose a young girl who came into the audition. And if you look at YouTube, like the audition with Leia Salonga, who at the time looked like she was 12. And she, and she is an amazing talent. And I'm proud of her because she's Filipina too, like me. But it was very disturbing to see the two white male gaze upon this young Asian female actress and pictured her as an object of a desire. That is troubling. It's like, why do we not disrupt that? Why should we not disrupt that? We cannot allow our children, our daughters and our sons, our cisgendered or non-binary children to continue to be perceived from that white male gaze that is so troubling that Miss Saigon continues to perpetuate. In the last production, we then received an ap a public apology and Ordway said, we promise we will no longer produce this. And then eventually I would name Shelly Kiala Springbob. She was the VP of Education and Community Engagement. Then as an inspiration from what we did to protest, started 
a series at the Ordway where artists of color were invited to take a Broadway show and appropriate it to their own disruptive interpretations. I found out that the reason that they did that was because of as a, a response to the protest. Something happened there. And I think to this day, people still don't understand why we protested. Like, why is, why, what is so wrong with Miss Saigon? It's just about how love can transcend all differences. Like, it was not about love. Think about the sex industry or the flesh industry that was perpetuated by World War II. It's a continuation of that. If you think about never allowing a biracial relationship to happen because one party is a person of color who eventually kills themselves, that's a message that's passed, getting passed on to the next generation. You know, we compete against the, the, the well-funded capitalist forms of expression and our tool our tools are the very tools that we started with AR, which is we find each other, we continue to connect and search for ways to make a difference and to transform the narrative without capital, without big producers backing us up. We'll just do it. We'll keep doing it. Like, you know, I think that the Asian American story is unstoppable. And it will continue to be unstoppable for as long as there are spirits like, you know, the generation that started AAR and your generation and continuing generations to make sure that we are unstoppable. That's the legacy of AAR. Right now, I'm just thinking about how I actually, I saw Miss, Miss Saigon as a kid mm. in uh, Cleveland where I grew up. And at the time I was like, how cool that there's even an Asian actor on stage in a main role. That was, that was my takeaway. Mm-hmm. And yet the underlying messages of what that story is telling someone like me as a kid, us Asian women are only valuable when we're objects of sexual pleasure or when we sacrifice ourselves for others. And it also created this divide and conquer, you know, approach for us because the dilemma of an Asian American actor or artist um, and the message that it it, um, imparted that if you wanted to become part of the big picture, you're gonna need to do this. You know, you're gonna gonna need to Charlie Chan it or you're gonna gonna need to Susie Wong it. (laughs) The only acceptable digestible version of Asians in the mainstream is this this particular Asian and it gives you no choice it gives you no choice which is yeah it's like a sellout (laughs) right and which was the dilemma that started in New York because first it was like whoa a Broadway production imagine all these amazing Asian American talents swarming New York City looking for an opportunity to be on the big stage finally there's one So everybody's auditioning. First, it was that. And then they brought in not an Asian American actor and not to knock the talents that came in, but to bring in an Asian actor imported like there was no single Asian American performer that could ever fill the role, right? And then to bring in a white guy to play another Asian actor with yellow face. 
so first so then the protest first was like why did you bring people when we were already here and then it became no wait a minute we actually don't want that role we don't actually don't want to be part of you because we realize this narrative is even more damaging as a result of perpetuating this singular um narrative that has been that has gone down from generation to generation and we need to put a stop to it so it was a two-layered protest that's really a great point i feel like that's something that we're still just seeing some significant change on in terms of like larger production companies identifying local talent. Kind of hopping back to something you had mentioned a bit earlier with the inspiration for the name Asian American Renaissance and being inspired by the Harlem Renaissance. I'm curious, what inspiration or connection did you have to other communities of color at this time? And did you work together? Did you um, get guidance or were you in solidarity with them while you were developing this organization and what it means to be a political community of artists and organizers? I personally don't remember any formal way that we reached out to other, if you're saying other communities of color, other organizations of color but we knew that we were in solidarity with other groups of color or BIPOC groups at the time. And there were a lot of partnerships. For example, one of the programs that AAR did was called In The Mix, and it was a partnership with Penumbra Theater. And it was a youth program that brought Asian American and African American youth um, through the experience of theater. That was a partnership that was not during the formation of AAR, but while a when AAR was up and running. There was one other program that started out with the idea of like former representative Saitao does these dragon heads like she he he carves out these dragon heads so um, I did a summer program with him and urban boat builders headed by Setu Jones, who's an African American public artist um, to bring together uh, teens over a summer to create a dragon boat with Saitao mentoring them on how to carve out the dragon boat. We then tested the dragon boat in Lake Fail, and then I think eventually then it became the Dragon Boat Festival. But the start of it was that one summer when we partnered with Urban Boat Builders um, with some funding from the Kellogg Foundation. And Setu was part of the mentorship and <laughs> We actually launched the first dragon boat on the Mississippi River with, with myself and some other folks. Um, at the time, Rick Shiomi headed uh, a way, you know, kind of, I think we, we did like a rehearsal so that we knew how to follow the cop screen so that we, our rowing was coordinated. And then when we actually put out on the water, the water was so rough and say to Jones was in a motorboat keeping his distance just to make sure that he was there in case of emergency. <laughs> and I remember my daughter Diwa and Sam were in the boat with me and they got freaked out because the water was so rough and I got freaked out at like, why did I do this? And I see the parents like running along the shore following us because we were trying to go back to the land. Um, and I remember D1 and Sam going, we're going to die, <laughs> like screaming their heads off. He's like, we're fine. We're fine. We're all fine. But that was like, 
thinking back on it, it was like, yeah, we started out with rough waters, <laughs> literally in metaphor. Yeah. Um, but that was a partnership that was started because of Seitu's connection with urban boat builders. So we had like two public artists, Saitao, uh, who then became, of course, a public official, and Seitu Jones, whose works is, are all over the Twin Cities, working together to bring you to, you know, to do this, drag, to make this dragon boat. What have you learned or how have you sustained yourself through the 30 plus years of being an arts organizer? One day at a time, one trouble at a time, one issue at a time. I have such a strong identification with the kind of work that I do that it is not work. It's play and it's, it's meaningful play. And I think how I sustain myself personally and you know, as an organizer is like, just to keep the eyes on the prize, to look back at the lessons and the, the challenges that we faced and we were brave enough to face. We fought with giants and we continue to fight with giants and we got some victories and those victories have to be remembered. Like the protest with Miss Saigon, the fact that we formed, we, we did the first Asian American conference in the country. The fact that all these organizations in the Twin Cities, um, Asian American organizations, arts and culture exist now, that looking back and saying that all started because we each had an individual will in each of us to make visible that negative space that we were forced into. And I continue to remind myself that part of why we're here and part of why you're given a set of skills or part of why certain people surround you is because there is a purpose for you. If you're given a pencil, you're meant to use that pencil to write something. Whatever tools I have, whatever interests and passions I've had through the years, I know I have them not for anything other than that I have to use them. I, it wouldn't have been gifted to me if I wasn't meant to use them. So I continue to use them. Looking forward to the future, what is your vision and hopes for the future? The future, the future is made in the present. Um, I think that if I personally or as in, in coalition and in solidarity with other community activists and artists, if we live in the present and pay attention to the present of what is going on right now in the streets of the, you know, of our town from Amir Locke, George Floyd and Yuriko Chiyama and Malcolm X and Larry Itliong, like if you utter those names and know that they are still present today, then this present is what is forming that future. I don't know what the future will look like. I only know that if we continue to live full in this moment and really pay attention and care about each moment, that when one more black or brown body is diminished or snuffed out, that you have the tool, the words, the writing skills, the body to dance, the vision to dream, to go out there and tell that story in your way, in your own way. 
and just keep doing that. Before we close out today, Marlena shared a wonderful story with me about her daughter Diwa and David Mura's daughter Sam, who grew up as children of the Asian American Renaissance. David Mura and Susie Sensor and myself, I was for the most part a single parent at the time. We were co-parenting in some way like Sam and Diwa, my daughter Diwa and, and their daughter Sam were good friends from the time they were toddlers because of AAR. And so one day I was like picking up Diwa who, had st- who was staying at um, David and Susie's house and Susie rushes out to me and says, I think we're doing something right. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, well, be quiet, but we're sneaking down the basement because I want to show you something. And apparently during the time that I left Diwa, um, the two of them were reading Ruby Bridges and they realized that there, there was no Asian American Ruby, Ruby Bridges and that they were going to emulate that and were going to say something about it. And they started creating these placards, like the basement, David and Susie's house are like, you know, was like littered, the floor of the basement was littered with these placards that they had been creating. And apparently that they were staging these protests um, that Asian American kids need to be included in, in the conversation. It was like with so much humor and so much charm that, um, that our kids kind of imbibed all, the, all these values and, and these nuances in their own way. And it was just so natural to them. It was part of their play, clamoring for their own rights as kids fighting for their own space at the Thanksgiving table because their children's tables were separated from the adult table and that we need to be at the same table together during Thanksgiving. They did a petition walking around, little kids walking around with clipboards asking each of the guests like, will you sign this petition so that our, so that the children and the adults are in one table? <laughs> and so from that year on, like we, we found like a really long, um, tablecloth so that even though because they couldn't reach the tables right so there was the little table and the big table and then one long tablecloth that connected them and from that point on everybody was at the same table and they all have grown up to be young adults that reflect um, what we had hoped the future was going to look like as you asked me like we didn't know but they decided for themselves Thank you so much to Marlena for sharing these incredible stories and memories with us. We hope you learned a little bit more about the Asian American Renaissance and the Don't Buy Miss Saigon protests today. Our hope with this podcast is not to provide a comprehensive Asian Minnesotan history, but to uplift a small handful of the voices and leaders in our community who have paved the way for the work that we are doing today. We hope that one day our students and young people get the opportunity to learn about these rich histories in their schools. This leads us nicely into our topic for the next series of episodes, Ethnic Studies. Next week, our mini-Asian stories correspondent, Hannah Kinzer, interviews Joyce Yu, who reflects on her experience fighting for Asian American Studies at the University of Minnesota back in the 1960s. 
Were you a part of the Asian American Renaissance or the fight for Asian American studies at the University of Minnesota? We'd love for you to add to the conversation. You can do so at anchor.fm slash mini Asian stories. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash mini Asian stories. Just look for the message button and leave us a short voice message. The Mini Asian Stories podcast is co-produced by the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, The Uptake, and WFNU Frogtown Community Radio. We release new episodes each week, which are available on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Please, if you haven't done so already, we invite you to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews are a huge way to help us continue sharing these stories and reaching new audiences. Special thanks to Katie DeSell, our editor, and to Vin Lu for the theme music. Once again, I'm your host, Julia Gay, and this is the Mini Asian Stories podcast. <laughs>